0: Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians, if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We prepare our hearts for communion and sharing at the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 15 and the first 11 verses. Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. It's pretty obvious if you read the whole of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church had some serious challenges You don't need to be a scholar To read through 1 Corinthians And find out there's problems in that church Corinth was a major city in Paul's day It was a thriving seaport A diverse city with many sacred places Temples dedicated to various gods Emperor worship, mystery cults from Asia And then a Jewish synagogue thrown in for good measure It was a city known for sexual immorality With hundreds of temple prostitutes Servicing the nightlife It was so bad that The phrase was coined To live like a Corinthian And if someone said you Corinthian It was not a compliment It was a slur It was their way of saying you're an immoral person You're living an immoral life One of the great Bible scholars Gordon Fee says Corinth was like New York, Los Angeles and Las Vegas All rolled into one Who wants to go there? And right in the middle of all that stuff, the Apostle Paul planted a church. He went to Corinth, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3. With much fear and with much trembling. A little aside at this point. How many of you encouraged by the fact that Paul went into an evangelistic ministry with fear and trembling? But it didn't stop him. He went into that ministry... And it shouldn't stop you either because we all feel it, don't we? When we're, when we're in that situation, it didn't stop him because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the office in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul preached the gospel and Acts 18 verse 8 tells us many of the, Christ, the Corinthians who heard, they were baptized and they believed and more and more people were responding to the gospel and coming to Christ. Paul did what he would always do gathered them Sunday by Sunday, probably not Sunday morning, it was a work day, Sunday evening after work. They became the first Christian church in Corinth. If you didn't like that church, tough, there was no other church to go to, that was it. And for their first 18 months, the Apostle Paul was their pastor. Paul eventually moved on to Ephesus, and and while he was there he hears news of some really disturbing things happening in this church that he has planted and pastored for 18 months. And in response to what he hears, he writes a letter to them. And 1 Corinthians is that letter. Paul hears that there's sexual immorality in the church. He can hardly believe his ears. And so in 1 Corinthians 6.19 he writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? That was language they could relate to. They saw temples all over the place around Corinth. And Paul saying, look, your body is a temple. The Spirit of the living God lives in you. You can't get into sexual immorality. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Paul says, you're not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. Paul hears that there's division in the church, some are thinking that they're superior to others and some are feeling very inferior. It's an incredibly mixed congregation, like this one really. People from all walks of life representing the mix of the city, there was wealthy people and poor people. There were people who owned their own business and there were slaves. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives us that great body metaphor where he says, look, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. We need each other, says the Apostle Paul. Just tell the person next to you, look at me and I say, I need you. Go on. And it's true. Did somebody say, oh no, I don't. (laughs) I were some funny looks between husbands and wives there as you were doing that, but... The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. No one is superior. No one is inferior. Though the body is made up of many parts, they form one body, says Paul. It doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter about your upbringing. It doesn't matter about your bank balance. Anybody glad about that this morning? I pray your bank balance increase in Jesus' name. Always gets a good shout in a Pentecostal church, does that one. But your bank balance doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in God's eyes. We're all one. We're all on the same page. We're all sinners saved by grace. We are one in Christ. And amid the incredible diversity that makes up Bridge Community Church, we are one. We are family. Brothers and sisters. Welcome to the family. Just look at the people around you. Look at the family like us. They're not as good looking as you, but they are your brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. We are one. And then Paul mentions other issues, and then eventually he gets to the issue that our passage addresses. Some of the Corinthians were saying, there is no resurrection of the dead. When you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. There's no resurrection. And Paul shows them how absolutely ridiculous it is. How absurd at what they're saying. You're a church, for goodness sake, says Paul. You worship Jesus. Are you telling me he's dead? Do you worship a dead Jesus? So in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, Paul says, Look, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. They had really lost sight of what the gospel is. They'd lost sight of it. So in our passage... Paul goes to town to explain to them, to remind them what the wonderful good news of the gospel really is. So verse 1 of our passage. Paul says, let me remind you of the gospel I preached to you. The gospel you responded to. The gospel you received. The gospel by which you are saved. And then in verse 3 he says, For what I received, I passed on to you. Let's just make a little side note before we rush on from that. For what I received, I passed on to you. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians just really 25 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. The Christian church in Corinth, it's, it's only 25 years old, but already... Already, they had well rehearsed sayings that we would call creeds. Paul says, what, what I'm about to tell you is something I received. I, I didn't make it up. It's, it's not mine. It's what I received. It's what the apostles have been preaching for the last 25 years. It's a foundational doctrine. Paul says, Look, it's been repeated and repeated and taught so much, it's become a saying, it's become a creed. It's what Scott McKnight refers to as the apostolic gospel tradition. So here it is, verses 3 to 5, an early apostolic gospel creed. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Let's take it a line at a time. Christ died for our sins. We mustn't brush past those first two words. Christ died. Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Christ. This one died. Hebrews 1.3 Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is the Christ. The one who sustains all things died. The one by whom all things were created tasted death. No wonder John Wesley pens those words in his great hymn. tis mystery all the immortal dies. And if that isn't enough. It's not just that Christ died, but the text says Christ died for our sins. And as we reflect on the cross, on the cross is the Christ, God incarnate. And he is there for our sins, for your sin, for my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Christ died for our sins. He hangs on the cross not for himself. He knew no sin. He hangs on the cross for you and me. He carries our sin, bears our sin. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 22. And he speaks over that first communion. He says this, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and said, this is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. And in the same way after supper he took the cup saying look this is the cup of the newcomer in my blood. And it is poured out for you. His broken body. His shed blood for you. For me. Are you glad this morning that Jesus carried your sins to the cross? You're glad this morning that it was for you he bled and died. Yes he gave his life for the person next to you. But it's for you. It speaks volumes to us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 6 and 7, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Are you glad this morning that he didn't wait till you could clean up your act? Because he'd have waited a long time, wouldn't he? glad this morning he came right into our darkness, right into our mud, right into our mire, right to where we were. Christ died for our sins. His broken body, his shed blood, his outstretched arms tell us how deep is the Father's love for us. And it's not that we deserved it. It's not that we earned it. It's not that I was so amazing that God thought I'll give my life for him. The absolute opposite. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. It was while we were powerless he came to where we were. Christ died for our sins. And Paul says according to the scriptures. And it would seem he's pointing back to Isaiah 53, probably verses 5 and 6. Where it tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of of us all, Paul is saying this all happened according to the scriptures. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God did this. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. In John 19, Pilate says to Jesus, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. This is not Pilate's will. This is not Caesar's will. This is not the will of the Roman soldiers. This is the will of God the Father. It is according to the scriptures. It's not a spur of the moment thing. For centuries, says the Apostle Paul, the scriptures have foretold this moment. It is an expression of the patience of God. And the heart of God to bring us back into relationship with Him. Are you glad this morning that God is patient with you? I'm so glad He's patient with me. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried and raised on the third day. If this creedal saying finished at Christ died for our sins, that would be marvellous, it would be wonderful, but it wouldn't be the gospel. To put it in Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Verse 19, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. But then in verse 20, with a resounding throng, he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. This is a gospel of hope. Christ died, but he wasn't finished. Christ died for our sins, but that wasn't the end. Hallelujah, he conquered death and hell and sin. It's a gospel of hope. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, his victory is our victory. Because he lives, we will live also. This is a gospel of hope. A hope here and now. Christ died for our sins. Our past is buried. Thank you, Jesus. We don't need to live in the past. Why? Because Christ died for our sins. It's a gospel of hope. Not just for the past, but for today and tomorrow. Not only has Christ died for our sins, but he's conquered death and hell and sin. And that's possibly where the creedal statement ends. But Paul continues on. And to really help the Corinthians get it, he's so keen that they get, look, Jesus is alive. He ventures into the world of apologetics, which is not something we do very much here. And he offers them evidence. Here's some evidence of the resurrection. Here's some proof that Jesus is alive. And it is so encouraging when you understand it. It's in evidence for you and me and encouraging for you and me too, as much as it was for them. He mentions people Jesus appeared to. And they were people that everybody would know. This is only 25 years after the resurrection And it wasn't just that Jesus appeared to them. It wasn't just that Jesus appeared and said, oh, I've seen Jesus. No, their lives changed. Their lives changed in such a dramatic way. It was testimony to the truth. Jesus is alive. So Paul says, Jesus appeared to Peter. And it's as if Paul's saying, look, you know, Peter, you know what a state he was in when Jesus died. You know how he denied knowing Jesus. He was well on his way going back to being a fisherman. He was disillusioned. He was dejected. He thought it was all over. But look at him now. How do you explain that, says the Apostle Paul? How do you explain this dejected, depressed, I'm going back to fishing, I'm chucking it all in person. Look at him now, he's changed. He's seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's willing to give his life for the cause. Who does that? For a lie. Jesus appeared to Peter says Paul. And then to the twelve. Well you know them. They all ran away. They all left Jesus on his own. They went into hiding for fear of losing their own lives. And even when some of them had seen Jesus. And they told Thomas. Thomas refused to believe them. I won't believe says Thomas. Unless I see for myself. Unless I actually touch and see the wounds. And oh the grace of God. Are you glad this morning for the grace of God. Oh, the grace of God that came to where Thomas was and whispered as Jesus appeared and said, Thomas, put your hands, touch my wounds, put your hand into my side. Now these apostles, every one of them, Those that had hid in fear, they've met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And now with great courage in the face of persecution, they gladly bear the name of Christ. Most of them would be martyred for their faith. Tradition has it, Peter was crucified upside down. Who does that for a lie? Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, Paul goes on. Then after that, to more than 500 people at the same time, most of them still living. Look, says the Apostle Paul, you can go and talk to these people. Most of them are still alive. You know them. They were all together in some meeting. We we don't know anything about this meeting. But Jesus appeared to them. Jesus appeared to 500. It wasn't a mass hallucination. They can't happen. They all saw Jesus. They all told the same story. Jesus appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500. Then, Paul says, he appeared to James. That's interesting. This is James, the brother of Jesus. This is James, the skeptic, James, the unbeliever. John 7, 5, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, I don't know if any of you have a brother or not. But for those who do, would you have had a hard time believing him if he told you he was God? Think of your brother now. So maybe we can understand where James was coming from. Something happened. Something amazing happened. This skeptic, this unbeliever, becomes the leader of the first church in Jerusalem. No longer an unbeliever. Because Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to him. James became the great apostle, the leader of the Jerusalem church. He eventually died a martyr's death. Who does that for a lie? Finally, Paul says, if this isn't enough evidence for you, finally, after he appears to all of them, Paul says, he appeared to me. And you know my story. I wasn't looking for Jesus. Pretty much the opposite, says Paul. I'm the least of the apostles, it says in our text. I'm not even deserved to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. I hated the church. I persecuted the church. I wanted to shut the church down. I wanted to stop all this talk about Jesus. But God's grace, God's grace. You're glad of the grace of God this morning. The grace of God that came right to where I was. But God's grace, says the Apostle Paul, intervened. On the road to Damascus, the risen Lord Jesus appeared even to me. And Paul said, now for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul says, I know the Spirit of God has told me every city I go into, I'm going to be beaten up. But I've seen Jesus. I've seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It's changed my life. And now for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So I want to declare it with everything I have this morning. No doubt about it. This morning there is good news and it's this. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. The grave clothes left behind. The angel's words resounding. He's not here. He is risen. Hallelujah. We serve a risen saviour. In verse 1 of our passage, as we come to a close, back to verse 1, Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So I ask you this morning, where do you stand? What is the ground that you're standing on? This is where we stand, says the Apostle Paul. We stand on the truth of the gospel. We stand on the truth of the gospel. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Our past is dealt with because Christ died for our sins. We don't need to live in the past. We don't need to dwell on the past. It's all under the blood of Christ. This is my blood shed for you. Friends, this morning, the past is buried in Jesus' name. We don't stand in the past. We stand on the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we stand. The past does not define who you are. The old has gone. The new has come. Whatever Satan whispers, we can say, away with you, Satan. That's not where I stand. You can try and tell me God doesn't love me anymore, but I don't stand there. You can try and tell me that God won't forgive me this time, but I don't stand there. I stand on Jesus Christ, the solid rock. I stand on the truth of the gospel. That Christ died for my sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's where I stand. And so we can say, I am a new creation. No more in condemnation. Here in the grace of God I stand. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together, friends.